0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Longevity Muscle Podcast. I'm Kenny, your host, and we are back for part two with Peter Kacharian. If you haven't checked out part one, we highly recommend you do that first. Without further ado, though, we're going to get right into the episode. Enjoy. Because I want to know if you've ever heard this saying, maybe from the high intensity communities where they had mentioned the final rep is actually like meaning that that final rep where you're approaching, where you're pretty Mm -hmm. much going to failure is actually... Now, again, tell me if you've heard this, the yes. safest, you've heard this saying? Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a, enlighten us a little bit with your uh, input on that, because I find yeah. that an interesting That's saying. a great
1: point. I, I, It's funny you brought that up because um, I actually, I believe that when I was in the era or the phase of high intensity training, because I mentioned talked about that, um, a lot of people did, and it makes sense, you know, when you explain it on paper. Um, but then when you go in the gym and you you see it it's a totally different thing. so the way it makes sense on paper is because you know you're so fatigued you can't lift the weight very fast there's no explosive movement because you know you're so weak and you're so warm there's so much blood in the muscle so you know let's say you're doing a, a dumbbell curl the last set the last rep is gonna move so slow because you're so fatigued that you can't apply a ton of force momentum things like that but, In practical application, what we see is when, as you do a set and you're reaching failure, the set becomes very painful. And a lot of times when you're in pain, when you're fatigued, your body naturally doesn't want to be in that state. So it will do anything it can to get that weight to move. So if you're doing an exercise approaching failure, most times you'll see people taking a set to failure. As you get closer to failure, the form and the technique will break down. That's one of the first things that happens. And that's also why I don't recommend going to failure on something like a squat or a deadlift that's very technical because those last couple of reps, especially let's talk about a deadlift, try taking a set of deadlifts to failure. For most people, the last rep is going to be very, very ugly. You know, very ugly. And it might not necessarily even be the, you know, if you're training, let's say, you know, people do delts for back or they're doing it, let's say, for the posterior chain, it's just one part of your body that's actually failing it. If it's your lower back, Now you're placing the entire burden on just the lower back. You know, same thing with a squat. The idea of taking a squat to failure, or at least the way in in high intensity training, the goal is you want those quads to fail, fail. That's why you're taking the set to failure. But if you're doing a squat, a lot of times that form is breaking down to the point where it's not even your quads that are failing. It's your lower back, your technique that can't hold the weight anymore. So you're putting your body at such a high risk for poor technique, and you're not even accomplishing the main goal, which in that set was, I want to take my quads to failure. So in reality, you're getting your quads maybe one or two reps shy of failure, but your lower back wasn't able to support that weight or the technique broke down. So you're not even getting the benefit that, you know, you're supposed to get from the failure training, but you're also putting yourself at a higher risk. So, And I can tell you this, 90% of the aches and pains of the injuries I've had in the gym have actually come from the last rep. So that firsthand experience, whether you want to argue or not, that, you know, the, the first or the last rep is the safest. My experience has shown time and time again, that majority of my little niggles or injuries that I've gotten in the gym have come from that last rep for sure.
0: It's good that you brought that up. And I think that's, there is huge value in personal experience with running mm. a specific thing, a specific method, system, technique, whatever it might be. And yeah, I think tolerance has a big thing to do with it as well. Cause it's like, at the end of the day, you might be able to tolerate internally that ninth or 10th rep just shy of failure. And then you go to that 11th or 12th and all of a sudden something, yeah. mean, it happens, it tears, yeah. right? You're yep. like, what happened? just there?
1: happens. Right? Just doesn't happens. happen on
0: the first rep, bro. It happens no. on the 11th where you're just about hitting failure. Um, Give me one body, you know, scenario with a bodybuilder where it happened on like the first rep. I mean, I'm sure it happens. Yes. Usually that could be like you said, a weight, just way too much load thing or yeah. maybe, too much range, right? You know, it's just right. blowing past ranges that you might have, you know, available to work with. Um, especially in like a bench press, like a barbell bench press, just jamming you down to the bottom yeah. or something like that. But yeah, if we're, you know, would you would you say that based upon? Well, this is your experience, but mm-hmm. even from most injuries that do occur, it's usually the ones close or closer or to failure. That yeah. where they happen.
1: It's almost always when you see a rep where you said right before, let's say I'm watching somebody do a set. It's almost right before when you say he shouldn't do another rep. And then he does that rep. And that's when almost when it happens, it's so predictable, you know, but like you mentioned, sometimes it does just happen. But again, it's usually on a rep that wasn't necessary. You know, whenever I've, I've done that, it's literally where I said to myself, and I've said to myself before, you can put the weight down, you did enough. But then the ego sets in, and you say, "Listen, I want to break a PR. I want to. I want to do another rep just to see if I could do it." And you wish you didn't do that last rep. You know that's usually when it happens. And there's a lot more that goes into it than just the fact that you're training to failure. A lot of times, those yes. injuries come from other aspects that people don't even they're not even aware of. You know, like the programming itself. You know, a lot of times if somebody gets an injury similar to that let's say they go in the gym and they do a rep and that just that one rep for whatever reason something tore a little snapped or a little aches and pains a lot of it was predetermined by what they did previously the week before prior weeks you know if you're training in a system where let's just say you're training all out on one one exercise without giving it proper rest over time you might walk in the gym that day and you might think it was just the last rep that you did maybe the technique and the the set was perfect but just so much fatigue and so much overlap and lack of recovery built up that when you went in that the gym that day, whatever you did, you're going to probably result in an injury. And I think that's where proper programming and recovery really, really is overlooked for most people. People just think, oh, I'm, you know, my chest is not sore today, so I'm recovered. But if for the last six weeks you had some type of improper programming or something that didn't lead to proper recovery over time, you can walk in feeling okay. The second you grab that heavy weight, your body is just like, no, I, I don't have another week of this. And that's where those injuries come out of nowhere. Yeah.
0: No, that's an incredible thing you brought up. And we can dive into that because I don't want to, like you had mentioned, like scare people away from training hard or training to failure, because there's so many, yeah, there I don't want to many. do that. Yeah. I don't want to do
1: that. No, yes. definitely I'm glad you because- I'm glad you're mentioning that because I just want to make that known too because yes. I'm the person that tells people all the time that they don't train hard enough. So I don't want to yeah, I don't want to go down that yeah. Yeah. But this
0: is why, it, you know, you, mm-hmm. you it's so, um, there's a, a balance between yes. having the perspective mm-hmm. on both ends of the spectrum. So yeah. that way you can be smart about it because I think either some people are on one end of the spectrum yes. where they're not training at all mm-hmm. hard or they're training way too hard. And it's like, okay, that's why we're bringing this up because there's a time, a place, and there's many variables to consider that could influence like what you had just mentioned, where maybe you're at more risk for an injury and programming is one of them yeah. recovery, sleep, are you choosing the right exercises for your body? I wanted to bring these up because it's not just training all out effort. That's a problem. Uh, right. It's training all out effort, maybe too much, too often, too frequently in a row, maybe. Right. So yeah. it's um. I think those are important things to just bring up. But let's talk about the programming and how that could influence things, because that's a good one. And we were going to break this down with uh, the quote unquote, is there a best muscle building split? to right you know that people should be following but i'm gonna let you before i inject my thoughts because this is i want you to talk about it uh maybe you can provide some insight for the listeners with that
1: yeah yeah i mean that's that's a really big thing that's you know a lot of people will talk about the split itself and they'll assume that the the best split is the one that works the muscle groups in a certain order, a certain frequency, but they forget to look at the split itself as just a way of organizing the actual training that you're doing. So the split itself is not building any muscle. What's building the muscle? You know, the reps you're doing in the gym, the sets you're doing in the gym, the rest and recovery, and the progressive overload. How you do that, there's many different ways to go about it. You know, so all the different splits are just a way of organizing that actual training. So, in a, you know, in a very general like we'll give a very general example, and we'll just say that we'll take somebody where they need roughly 10 sets a week of quad work to grow their quads and let's say the average intensity of the set is like one or two reps shy of failure let's just assume that that's the way that's what their body requires to grow right now they're growing all the time there's many different ways to do that you could do all 10 sets in one workout you know you can do five sets on monday five sets on thursday right now people will look at that and they'll say well is twice a week better than once a week. There's definitely pros and cons to how you set that up. So now if you're training in a way where it allows you to be the most productive in every single one of those sets, it's probably going to work better. So if let's say you did 10 sets of quads in one workout, but after the first five, you're so fatigued and your training intensity is so low that the next five sets, you're not really doing much. You know, you're kind of just, you're doing, you're kind of half-assing the rest of the workout. You know, you don't have the same intensity. You don't have the same quality. You're probably training a little bit lighter. Now if we move let's say those five sets over to another day during the week now you're training that second half of the workout later in the week but you're training it with much higher quality workouts much higher quality sets maybe there's more weight in there you're probably going to get better results but it's not necessarily the fact that you trained it twice a week it's just that you organized your training better so that you got higher quality of work done it's kind of looking at it you know a good example i always say is if you were studying for a test you know if you cram one night you're not gonna retain as much information as if you studied a little bit throughout the week. So that's why higher frequency training generally tends to work better. Obviously, you could go down the rabbit hole and talk about you know, all different things that happen with high frequency training. You could get more into the science aspect of it, talk about protein synthesis and things like that. But when we really scale back and just kind of look at it big picture, the major difference is what was the quality of training that you did? You know, If you could see a night and day difference in the actual sets you perform, by organizing it in a different way, by organizing it with a higher frequency, it's always going to result in better progress over time. But it's a double-edged sword because people look at that and they say, okay, you know what? Now I'm going to set it up and I'm going to do one set or two, if you're talking about 10 sets a week, two sets, five days in a row. There's different ways you could program it so that you can recover and make it happen. But majority of the time you're going to have recovery issues, or at least recovery is going to be a bigger challenge training five days a week. Now that's something where it's actually going to backfire on you because you have to micromanage recovery. Even if you think that you're training productively, you might start to get these over overuse issues over time. Recovery becomes an issue now. so. The split itself, people will ask, oh, is you know training everything five days in a row better? Is it twice a week? Is it once a week? The main question is, which one can you set up so that you have the most productive workouts over time consistently? So that's always the way I approach it. Now I do add certain things based on what works best on paper. You know, when I say on paper, like you know, if we talk about frequency, generally it's pretty well known that if you are training with a high frequency, it is going to be better than once a week. But there's a case for bringing the frequency down. Again, if you're talking about recovery issues and fitting everything into the big picture. So, I think that's the biggest thing, it's quality of work over time. So, your training should be organized in a way where you have the highest quality workouts consistently. So,
0: if we were going to make that simplified for uh, the listener, where you have these different versions like you got like "quote unquote your bro split where everything's getting right. hit once per week versus on the other end of the spectrum, the full body 5 days per week, which is right. like, right? So, have you found from your experience that maybe somewhere in the middle, potentially for m- most people on average, there's a sweet spot for for most yeah. people, or do you find yourself going to one end of the extreme? And it's funny because this goes back to the high intensity, high volume. It's like bro right. split, five right. full body, five days a week. It's like, but what, what's your what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I do think that there's a sweet spot. And I would say for 90% of the people, I I usually don't like to give general recommendations, but this is one where it's pretty cut and dry. Like if we talk about 90% of people, you know, if their main goal is they want to get stronger and they want to build muscle twice per week is like really the sweet spot. That's not to say that they have to train twice a week, but instead of, you know, most people just when they, when they start getting into training and they look at a training program, they kind of start with, the idea of once a week. So they just assume, okay, I have a chest day, I have a leg day, I have a back day. I think people should look at it as training twice a week first and then from there adjusting it. So like, you know, to make, if it makes more sense saying I'm gonna try twice a week training and if I find that I need a little more recovery time instead of training a body part every two to three days, maybe I'm gonna train it every four to five days, let's say. Or, you know, if they find, listen, I'm doing great on twice a week, I could try three times a week. I think that's a better place to start most people. So when I work with, with with when, when I get clients that come to me and either, you know, some of them, most of them are already training with fairly high frequency, but I do get plenty of people that start doing bro splits and things like that. By default, if I'm kind of starting from scratch, I like to start from scratch because I have to assess what type of recovery abilities they have. What they respond to and how we can set up their programming. I'll generally start them with a roughly twice a week frequency because that's really the sweet spot where most people can recover well, get good progress, and it kind of builds the momentum week to week. You know, a lot of times if I start somebody on a once a week frequency, depending on you know how their body is responding, it, it could get stale. Training, you know, coming back in a week later and then training that body part. I like to kind of start with twice a week, and then I could assess are they recovering good? If they are, we're going to keep it the same. If they're having a little bit of recovery issues, there's plenty of other variables we'll look at. You know, We'll look at the training intensity. We'll look at their technique. We'll look at their lifestyle factors. But if I assess, okay, you know what? This person might do a little bit better with a little lower frequency. I might cut it down to once every four days, four to five days max. Um, in, in my experience, that's kind of been the sweet spot. So, you know, roughly... Three to five days, every body part's like really like the sweet spot for 90% of people from what I found.
0: No, and it's good that you brought up, there's other variables. Like if someone's having recovery issues, like, okay, the overview of how things are arranged from a split, like in terms of how you're organizing your training, but it's, there's also, like you said, training effort how many exercise, how much volume are you doing? There's like, yeah. there's so many factors there. And it's good that you brought that up because people might hear this or just hear anything. And they just latch on to that one thing that someone said without considering right. what are the other possible uh, possibilities there. Right now, if you're talking about organizing, like, let's talk about mistakes. Like, cause I know you've probably made a bunch, you know, having been in this for 20 so years, i yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I've made a bunch. Yeah. Um, I'll give an example where and you don't know until you do this. Right. Um, and you start to progress with it too. Cause that's the big thing. Cause you might get away with it. Yeah. It feels good for one or two or three sessions. And then, then you start to run right. into the issues and then that's when you're mm. like, okay, this was a stupid idea. Right. But like, for example, doing heavy front squats the day after an upper body day, you wouldn't think about it, but for example, if you just trained it, you know, heavy back the day before you're doing mm. heavy front squats, it's like, you know, how much thoracic extension is required to do those heavy front squats. Like if your back is fried from the day before, you know, know, I've hurt myself doing that. So we're talking about organizing training properly. What are some things that, you know, you've learned just from, maybe exercise selection, if you're doing things back to back, do you have anything that you want to share on that?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great topic too, because it's something that most people don't, don't really consider when they look at a training split or training program. So when they, when they look at the split, they just look at what muscles are being trained in that session. If, like I said, if you train a certain exercise, that's very taxing. There's going to be carryover to the next day. So if you're, let's say your, your training schedule has a lower body day. And then the next day you're training, let's say it's a let's say it's a chest day or a back day, let's say it's an upper body day, you would just assume, okay, I train the lower body, my lower body's recovering the next day and now my upper body's fresh, right? But what type of nervous system fatigue did you create from all those heavy intense sets where the next day, if you're still carrying those that fatigue, your performance is going to be off the next day. It could be potentially, let's say. You know, if you're training all out to failure on legs, then the next day you come in, even if it's an upper body session, you're probably going to be a bit fatigued, you know, even if it's a completely different part of the body. And I think that most people don't look at what you're doing. In that session, uh, when setting up a program, they just look at the split itself to say, "Okay, this is leg day. The next day, I'll go in, I'll be fresh because it's upper body day, or vice versa." You know, I did back on Monday. I can go in and train chest on Tuesday. But if you're training exercises that are very physically demanding back to back in each session, that fatigue level generally will build over time. So let's just say uh, Monday you're doing squats. You know, Tuesday you're doing, let's say, bench and overhead press, and then Wednesday you come in. You know, you're doing rows, maybe even deadlifting. By Wednesday, you, know, you have three days back to back where you have so many systemically draining exercises and you would definitely do better by moving those exercises around or splitting up that training week um, to allow for a bit more recovery between those sessions. So I found that a lot of times when people have uh, recovery issues or little nagging injuries, a lot of it is not necessarily the training that they're doing is poor, it's just how they're organizing it throughout the week. And sometimes just moving those exercises around and setting it up in such a way where you get better recovery between those sessions themselves. So if you have a very demanding workout and you're taking, let's say, two days off a week per gym, let's say training five days, you'd want that very demanding workout to probably be before rest day, ideally, You know, rather than training two more sessions right after it. So there's there's many different ways you can split up the training, but I think that you have to look at the exercises and how demanding they are.
0: Gotcha. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I thought this would be good because if we're talking about organizing different variables, because you had mentioned, of course, it's going to depend. You said that sweet spot mm-hmm. is like twice per week on average, hitting each body part, and then you'll adjust based upon the individual. For the yeah. most part, right? I, I, it's a general guideline, but we'll just we'll go, run with what we were talking about earlier right. there. And if someone had a weak body part. How might you approach that scenario? Because then that's where you might want to potentially, potentially, and it doesn't have to be split. It could be like you'd mentioned, exercise execution, all these other variables, but I would love to, for you to elaborate on that.
1: Yeah. See, this is where it becomes like, it it becomes an area where there's so many variables now. So now there's so many ways you can look at it. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and they say, listen, you know, I want to, I want to bring my arms up. You know, that's, that's a question I get a lot. You know, what can I do to bring my arms up? There's so many things we could look at. So number one, obviously, you know, if it's a specific body part, you have to, first thing you always have to address is, you know, how you're training it. So technique is number one. A lot of times that can solve the issue for most people, just addressing the the technique, addressing the exercise they are using, because a lot of times people that have a leg muscle group, a lot of it is due to just poor technique in general. But let's say that we've, figured out that it's a techni- technique issue. We've fixed that issue and it's still a lagging muscle group. Then we have to look at, okay, you know what type of training volume are you training with? What about the frequency? How is your training structured in a way that allows you to train that muscle group completely, recover, and progressively train over and over again? Now we have to look at, like I said, frequency is probably the next thing I'll look at. If it's a lagging muscle group, your technique is solid. You're training with an appropriate RPE. You're training with enough intensity. If you're training it, let's say once a week, you're probably going to get more out of training it twice a week. Like I mentioned, Um, that's that's general rule of thumb for most muscle groups. But now some muscle groups just need a bit more volume than others. Some people in general require more volume. So you have to look at your volume. If it's maybe something you're training hard and you're doing five to 10 sets a week and it's not producing results, I'll definitely experiment and say, listen, we're going to add some more sets and see what your recovery ability is and see if we're getting more better results from that higher frequency, higher volume training. And the one thing I always tell people to look at when you're assessing your training and a specific body part is don't necessarily worry about soreness. Don't worry about how the training feels itself. Look at, are you making progress over time? So check your performance over time. So if it's a body part, a better example for this one is like, let's say it's chest. If you're still benching the exact same weight you were six months ago, and you've added an additional volume you've added an additional frequency that might not be the answer you know you might have to scale back let's say so a lot of times all these other things that people focus on they, they focus on did I feel the exercise you know did I get get pumped did I uh, feel sore after did I feel like I worked the muscle they don't necessarily matter because at the end of the day if you're making progress on those lifts that's going to tell you way more than you need to know
0: interesting so have you ever had a scenario where having coached a lot of people as well, where you've actually backed up, because you mentioned execution. First, mm-hmm. like That's like the yeah. first thing you'll look at. Yeah. Okay. Have you had a scenario where you've actually had to pull back on volume and they've actually gotten better results after you've addressed their execution issue, if there was one?
1: Yeah, I have actually. And it's usually due to the fact that they're training with so much volume that, like I mentioned earlier, most of those sets aren't actually intense sets. So they're kind of relying on the volume. And there's a case for volume, um, itself causing muscle growth, you know, like doing, like looking at a program where you say, listen, if we're, if we're not able to train to failure, let's say you have an injury or you can't push an exercise super hard. Um, and you do add, let's say a few more sets and you keep the RP in check. It might produce a bit more muscle growth because you haven't been training with that type of intensity. But if you're talking about a lagging muscle group, that's just not responding and somebody's doing too much volume itself, nine times out of 10, the, the fact that they're doing so much volume is what's causing that, that muscle group to be lagging because they're never actually training it hard enough. And like I said, the hard training is always the prerequisite. So first we have to assess, are the sets they're doing hard enough? So if they're doing, let's say 20 sets for that body part and it's not growing, I'm not necessarily going to say, listen, let's just scale it back to 10 because now they're going to just do 10 sets that aren't effective. Yeah, so if somebody's doing, let's say 20 sets on a body part and it's just, it's not producing any results, you know, they're not growing, it's a lagging muscle group and they're not putting the intensity in that they need to actually produce that growth, if we just say, "Listen, let's just cut it down to ten sets," that doesn't mean that they're going to grow. Now that they cut it down to ten sets, we have to make those ten sets effective. You know, and I'm just using ten as an arbitrary number. But if we can make each set more effective, we're going to need less of them. You know, and obviously that's that's an argument that people like to talk about for for low volume training. But there's definitely a sweet spot with volume, and uh, when you hit that sweet spot it should be with effective sets. So if you're, you know, you can't make up for it by saying, listen, I don't want to train hard. So I'm going to just do 30 sets of, of, you know, moderate sets you have to train hard. Um, your sets have to at least be somewhat close to failure. And then you're going to kind of have that sweet spot where you could say, listen, for this body part, it's, you know, eight to 10 sets or 12 sets, whatever it is, um, but those are going to be effective sets. So when I say effective sets, I'm talking about, you know, training roughly, you know, one or two reps shy of failure. I use that kind of as just my my staple. That's like my default, you know, one or two reps shy of failure for certain exercises that might even be closer to three reps from failure um, for certain exercises that might actually mean going to failure. But as long as you're in that sweet spot, one or two reps shy of failure, you know, there's going to be kind of this, 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 range of sets that's going to be optimal. And if you're doing way more than that for the sake of taking it easy, that's when you'll see a lot of people with lagging muscle groups that are just doing a ton of volume. I mean, most people you see in the gym that that look the same year after year. I mean, I'm not talking about bodybuilders, but guys that you go to you see routinely in the gym for one, two, three years at a time and their body never really changes. If you look at the way they train, a lot of them train with very high volume. You know, you'll get those guys in the gym where, you know, if it's chest day, their chest exercise, their chest workout, is made up of three to five sets of every single exercise in the gym. Oh, this is a chest exercise. I'm going to do this, you know? And those are the guys, you know, you see doing 20, 30 sets in a workout. Most of those sets obviously are not very intense. And a lot of times you'll see them year after year kind of looking the same. Those are the guys where you say, listen, you know, if we cut back the volume, we bring the intensity up a little bit. That's when you're going to start to see some growth. Hey,
0: everyone. Before we continue on, I just want to take this time to thank our sponsors, Let's Get Checked. They reached out wanting to sponsor the episode, sponsor the podcast, and after looking into their product, I felt it was beneficial to spread the word on their male hormone testing kit. For those of you who compete, diet regularly, or are trying to maximize muscle growth, it can be really good to know where your testosterone levels are at. So how it works essentially is they will send you an at-home kit where you collect a small blood sample. You send it back to their lab using a pre-packaged and prepaid envelope, and then a couple of days later, your results will be available online. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You even have access to speak with a nurse at any time during the testing by phone call or chat, which is really cool. And for all information regarding Let's Get Checked, hit the link in the description box. Special 25% discount for those of you who listen to the podcast. So definitely check it out. Thanks for listening. And now back to the episode. Awesome, man. And if you, if we're talking about sustainability, longevity, mm-hmm. again, with respects to not only just what you had mentioned with respects to how much volume you're doing, and if someone's doing, say, thirty sets, and it's so far away from failure, what about on the other end of the spectrum, where if someone's doing, uh, let's just say, ten, we'll just pick a number, we'll say mm-hmm. ten sets, right? If someone's doing 10 sets and they're training one to two reps shy of failure, you have this crowd of, and maybe you've come across it approach where he'll go four from fail to all the way to fail right before deload. You know what I'm talking about? And he'll add sets as well throughout the week. So he has this like progressive model. Now I have my thoughts on that going from say one or two sets.
1: It's a big increase. Yeah. four,
0: Four, four from fail. So not only is the sets on the low side, Right. but your effort is on the low side arguably and then how good are you at gauging that too four from fail is a lot harder to gauge than maybe one from fail right
1: yeah um, yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah and then all the way to say 10 sets oh, of course this has progressed over a week right right and then all of them to failure it's like right. one set to failure is highly fatiguing let yeah. alone 10 so what do you what's your take on that because yeah to me that's not progression that's that's absurdity uh, if I'm looking at that approach, especially for someone. And that's just my honest view on it. I've done it. I've ran it. I'm like, this is mm-hmm. insane. Actually, now that I think about it, it's not a micro progressive approach. Right. It's like one extreme to another and mm-hmm. it's happening too quickly. Um, but what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many things I could pick out of that that I, I don't like. Uh, I'm going to try to stick with just a few of like the, the obvious ones, though. Um, you know, so when you're progressing volume, let's say every single week, so you're adding sets, but you're also progressing the RPE or training closer to failure at the same time, um, you're kind of burning the candle at both ends. You know, that's kind of, you know, an analogy I like to, to use because, um, just simply adding in sets week after week, where let's say you keep the intensity the same. So let's say your average set is one to two reps shy of failure, you know, week one, you're doing 10 sets, let's just say week two, you're doing 11, 12, you're progressing like that you're already inducing a ton of fatigue, you know, every single week you're you're creating a bigger recovery demand. Now, if we were to also on top of that, increase the intensity of each set um, you're probably going to hit your, your max recovery abilities very, very fast that way. And um, you know, in most cases you can actually make a case, you know, in like in in powerlifting, and strength sports, it's kind of, they take the opposite approach, you know, as you get closer to uh, a contest or a meet, um, you know the intensity is going up, but the volume is going down. So in bodybuilding, it's a little bit different because obviously your goal is to build muscle. You're not worried about performance as as much. But when we're talking about you know a longevity approach, and we're talking about training consistently over time. That model of training is going to require that you you're going to train to the point where you absolutely need a deload. You're going to have to scale back. You're going to have to keep repeating this process. And what I found over time is using an approach like that when you're ramping up that fast. Um, Week one, you feel great. Week two, you say, wow, you know, I'm still adapting. I feel pretty good. Maybe week three, week four, all of a sudden out of nowhere, you're going to hit a wall. And it's almost like you didn't see it coming. And the reason you didn't see it quick. And again, on on paper, this might sound great. Um, And when you map it out and look at it, it makes perfect sense. But when you do it in the real world, it doesn't always play out that way Um, because people are just not aware of recovery from week to week of their training they forget what they did two weeks ago you know so now if we're looking at okay we're on week three week four of the plan and now all of a sudden we're doing double the volume triple the volume already um, yeah you're gonna hit a wall really quick and you know my personal experience I've experimented with that <clears throat> myself and that's usually what I've experienced um, if every single week I'm trying to add progressive overload whether it's through intensity or whether it's through volume, week one I'll feel great week two I might even hit a PR thinking like wow this is working. You know, and then mentally I say, okay, this is perfect. Keep training that way. Keep increasing intensity, keep increasing the volume. Then like week three, week four, out of nowhere, you just walk in the gym and you're like, wow, I'm weak today. I don't have the strength. You know, whatever reason, I'm carrying a ton of fatigue. Then if you go back and look at your training, you say, Wow, I ramped up the volume way too fast. I ramped up the intensity way too fast. And I think that's um Something that maybe beginners can get away with because your body's adapting so quickly. But when you're kind of like in the intermediate stages, especially when you're in advanced stages, it's not something you could really do consistently over time because you're going to keep fighting that stage of hitting, you know, your fatigue threshold and having to back back off and recover. So I don't think that's a productive way to train long-term. I think that there's definitely time and place for it. Um, If, you know, you say, listen, I'm going to train very aggressively for these couple of months, and in this block of training is going to be very aggressive, then I'm going to follow it up with deload. But if we're talking about making consistent progress over time, I don't think you should be training in a way where week three, week four, you're already, you have to take a deload, take a week off, you know, take a week to deload.
0: No, that's interesting. And to be fair, like, I don't think it's advocated that you have to ramp up like so quickly. Like it's almost like, Am I, am I recovering well from this amount of sets and this, but, but to, again, if we're going to play the devil's advocate on that, on that whole approach, if you will, there, it it is the approach of three to four reps in reserve, build it up to failure, right. Over the weeks. (laughs) So you go from the minimum effective dose to the maximum recoverable volume. Right. And you are progressing to that point, but it's, um, and then you kind of have this, yeah. Maybe what's wrong with just kind of staying in the right, middle, staying in
1: the middle. Yeah.
0: Because I also found, and this is my, again, my personal experience with it, and maybe you've experienced something similar, but when that week four or five or six comes around and everything has to be, you know, cause on paper, it's like everything has to be to that max. Right. right. Cause otherwise you kind of wasted the first two or three weeks, potentially right. if you were right. three to four from fail, if you're kind of staying right. there and then
1: mm-hmm.
0: what happens if on, on that final week or if you will where it's like i don't know you just stress or whatever the case right. maybe it's like yeah. then what, what you wasted three weeks training so far from right. failure potentially um you got a little bit of a sweet spot and then now you gotta back off you didn't even get to that fine like i don't right. know it just it feels like yeah it can create a lot of anxiety potentially and i know Absolutely. it works for it works for some people very well but then mm. i also question i'm like dude you're doing six or seven sets of leg curls or stiff like a deadlift to failure, I, I just right. I doubt it, bro. I just yeah. I doubt it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, it's very yeah. I it I've rarely actually seen like yeah. If somebody on paper says I did six sets and all of them were to failure, I've rarely seen that actually happen in real life in the gym. You know, you're probably at maybe one from failure, maybe even two from failure in the first couple of sets. Maybe you hit failure in, in the last one, but I can tell you this. You know, I've tried like I said every approach over the year years, and every single time. I've tried to relentlessly train to failure. I can only do a minimal amount of sets, no matter how I'm building it up. You know, a lot of the the argument for training in that way is you're kind of building up your work capacity as you get closer. Um, Now you can take the sets further. But if I were to say, let's say, use that approach. And in the last week, you know, that the program called for, I'm going to do six sets to failure. After I do one or two of those sets, I'm probably ready to leave the gym realistically. And And I have four more to do. I, I'm probably not even going to do them because that, what what am I actually physically capable of doing at that point? If I took it to failure to the point where I know that I took it to failure, because when I train like that, I'm, I'm done. Like, I, you know, especially if we're talking about an exercise, like you said, like we're doing stiff legs anywhere near failure, one or two of them is going to, that's going to leave me incapable of doing anything the rest of the workout. So I've never seen it. I've seen it plenty of times on paper where people say that that's what they're doing in practical application. And in real life, I've never physically seen it.
0: That's the thing, right? It's super interesting. It's an, It goes back to what we are saying, like, it's what you're saying, what you're actually doing, right? Because, right. you know, at the end of the day, like you said, it's all about, it's, it, preferences is a big thing, I think. for Absolutely. And psychology, if it works for someone's psychology. I know it wasn't, it wasn't for me right. and other high intensity, or I hate to say it like this, but people who've gone through that approach, who've put in, who know what real, like going all out effort is, that, that system doesn't really work for them either. And I, no. I can under, I can understand why, actually.
1: Yeah. And I'm, and even for me too, if we talked about preference, you know, if somebody asked me recently, you know, do, do you prefer to lift heavy and do, you know, a low amount of volume or do, you know, do lighter weight, higher reps, things like that. They asked me about my preference. And I said, you know, realistically, I'll train the way that gets me the best results. That's the way my personality is. But um, I mentally, you know, in the back of my mind, I always have that work ethic behind, okay, I have to at least, every set has to be at least, let's say, near failure, one or two reps shy. And now, if I'm trying to use a high volume approach or a progressively volume progressive volume approach, like we're talking about, I have to keep myself in check and say, "Listen, if I'm going to train this way, I might have to scale back." Let's say, like you said in the beginning of the block, where I'm training at that like four reps from failure, three reps from failure, and mentally, I don't like to do that. So now, if I go into that and I say, "You know, I'm just going to skip that and I'm going to start the block at one to two reps shy of failure," it's going to ne- it's not necessarily going to result in a productive block over time. And like you said, you know, that's kind of the middle ground. That's kind of the sweet spot in between where you're, okay, I'm not pushing the failure yet, but I'm not in week one or week two where I'm training four reps shy of failure. So for me, kind of hanging out in that middle for a longer period of time is going to result in better training. So that's also part of the thing. You have to understand the person that's applying the program, are they actually applying it hundred percent as written? Because I find that with a lot of people, if I say, listen, you know, leave three in the tank and they're the type of person that doesn't like to leave reps in the tank, they might go one rep. From failure and say, yeah, yeah, I had three more, you know, and vice versa. There's plenty of people where you tell them, take that. Sometimes I will, I will do that. Knowing the person, I will tell them if I want them to be two reps shy of failure, I'll say, take it as close to failure as you can. And to them, they say, yeah, I took it to failure, but they actually got to where I wanted them to go, which is maybe one or two reps shy of failure. So part of that is actually understanding who is applying the training and to what capacity are they actually training?
0: Love it, man. Awesome. If anybody wants to get in touch with you for coaching, to learn more about what you're offering,
1: where can they find you? Yeah, definitely. As you mentioned, check out my YouTube channel. It's just Peter Kacharian. Um, I'm on Instagram. My Instagram handle, it's uh, Jack. That's J-A-K-K-E-D. I do a lot of Q&As on there regularly. So I interact with a lot of my followers. So that's probably the fastest way to reach me directly. Um, Or they could check out my website. Um, I sell some courses on there. My online coaching is on there. The website is oldschoolmassgame.com
0: amazing and i'm going to link that in the description thank you once again for joining us peter it's a truly an honor a pleasure i'm sure the listeners are going to love it and for those listening be sure to share the episode tag us on instagram check out the youtube channel we're going to be dropping videos from this episode make sure to subscribe if you haven't already not only to the, the at longevity muscle youtube channel but to peter kacherian as well and Until next time.